With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. listeners and old listeners alike. For those of you longtime Truth and Justice fans, the time has finally come for us to return to Season 5, The Forgotten West Memphis 3. As you're all aware, two years ago, we had to pause our investigation on the podcast in order to film The Forgotten West Memphis 3 docuseries. And here we are now, two years later, and all of the work investigating in front of the cameras is finally available for you to view. The Forgotten West Memphis 3 series is premiering on Oxygen on Saturday, March 28th, less than a week away. We filmed the show as a four-part series, each episode being one hour in length. Originally, the thought was to air each episode week by week for four weeks. But lucky for you, Oxygen has decided to present the series as a weekend event. All four episodes will air next weekend. Parts 1 and 2 will air on Saturday the 28th, and Parts 3 and 4 will air on Sunday the 29th. And now, for all of you new listeners who have found us because of the TV series, welcome to Truth and Justice. After a short break here for our sponsor, I'll fill you in on what you've missed prior to the show airing. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. For those of you who are interested, perhaps even obsessed with the notorious West Memphis 3 case, you've come to the right place. The truth and justice model is to take on a different wrongful conviction case every season. We investigate these cases together, myself and you the audience, in real time. Our unique crowdsourced approach to these investigations has proven to be extremely effective. We've seen multiple convictions overturned and have gained the respect and trust of several innocence organizations like the Innocence Project of Texas. So, when you finally finish binging our season on the Forgotten West Memphis 3, which is season 5 for us, I'd highly recommend you checking out our other seasons and consider joining in on our next investigation in real time when season 8 premieres in a couple months.
What we're going to do today is take a look back at the first half of Season 5. For those of you who were with us during the West Memphis 3 investigation, this will be a nice recap for you before the TV series airs. For those of you who are new to the show or haven't listened to Season 5 yet, you'll get a really good idea of the work we did back in 2018 and a better understanding of how I came to be convinced of Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly's innocence. Everything began with an in-depth look at both the crime scene and victimology. I first began researching the West Memphis 3 case simply because I study wrongful convictions. I do this to learn how these things happen and to determine if there are certain patterns that I should be looking for when I'm screening cases that are submitted to me. When I began my research into this case, I immediately spotted a glaring flaw in not only the original investigation, but also in a lot of the media coverage. Now, there have been some incredible documentaries created around this case. The Paradise Lost trilogy and West of Memphis both broke new ground as they drew in public support to help free the West Memphis Three. And ultimately, their efforts were successful. In 2011, 18 years after being imprisoned, Damien, Jason, and Jesse were all finally set free. But that seems to be where the majority of the public interest in the case stopped. The West Memphis Three were free, so mission accomplished. But what about the other West Memphis Three? The victims. Stevie Branch, Christopher Byers, and Michael Moore. Where's the justice for the forgotten West Memphis Three. My investigation centered squarely on the victims. Throughout my years of working with retired FBI profiler Jim Clemente, I've learned that this is where a proper investigation needs to begin. So I embarked on a journey to better understand the movements and personalities of Stevie, Michael, and Christopher. Based on what I had seen in the documentaries and some limited reading, I had always assumed that the three boys were simply out playing together on the evening of their murders. But it didn't take long to figure out that that could not be further from the truth. The fact of the matter is that Stevie, Michael, and Christopher weren't actually together on the evening that they were killed until just before they entered the Robin Hood woods. During Season 5, we spent three full episodes breaking down all 140 pages of the notes taken by police during their door-to-door canvassing of the neighborhood after the boys' bodies were found. We looked at each lead and each sighting of the boys, assessed them for credibility, and then used that information to develop a hypothetical timeline of the boys' movements from the time school let out until they disappeared. What you're about to hear now is an excerpt from Season 5, Episode 8, where I presented my theory of Stevie, Michael, and Christopher's timeline. Keep in mind as you listen to this that this is a theory based on the sightings and leads. This is not necessarily accurate. It's a hypothesis. So here we go. Here's Season 5, Episode 8, when I presented my hypothetical timeline. After school, Pam walks home with Stevie. Michael goes home, and Christopher is missing in action. At 325, Michael takes off on his bike down 14th Street, headed towards Stevie's. At 330, Michael arrives at Stevie's, and Pam gives them permission to go ride bikes until 430. 
Stevie and Michael leave the house and head north on 16th Street. Ten minutes later at 3.40, Christopher shows up at Stevie's. He goes inside and watches Muppet Babies with Amanda until 4 p.m. Meanwhile, Stevie and Michael are playing in the southeast neighborhood near the Hobbs house. 4 p.m., Chris leaves the Hobbs house and finds Stevie and Michael headed south across Macaulay. The three connect and play around the south bayou behind Jamie Clark Ballard's house. This is when she sees them in the backyard, as opposed to her statement of 5.30. At 4.15, the boys head back out into the southeast neighborhood. This could have been when Jamie saw the three boys dart out from behind her house. Statements do indicate that Terry Hobbs was in and out of the house around this time and was expecting to be home at any minute. In this hypothesis, he yells at Stevie to get back down there. The side note, I'm not suggesting that there's any proof that this actually happened. It's simply the only time and circumstance where I can see it being possible for Jamie's statement to be credible. At 4.30, the three boys emerge onto Barton with a fourth boy. Chris can't keep up with the bikes, and he's late to be home, and he's right next to his house, so he splits off from the group and goes home. This is when he tries to break in through the window. Stevie, Michael, and Mystery Boy continue down Barton on their bikes when they are almost hit by Narlene Hollingsworth. At that point, Mystery Boy takes off, and Stevie heads home, taking Wilson south to Scottwood, then 16th south directly into his driveway. Michael, now without a playmate, goes to Christopher's house to see if he still wants to play. At 4.40, Chris and Michael take off towards Wilson Street to play, and at 4.45, the Hobbs lead their house to head to the moors looking for Stevie on their way to take Pam to work. By the time they get to the Moore's house, Stevie is headed south on 16th, and Michael and Christopher are playing on Wilson. At 5 p.m., Chris heads over to Lakeisha Freeman's house, where he plays on a skateboard, and Michael heads over to his friend Trey's house to see if he can play. He takes the short connecting street between Wilson and 14th. When he gets to 14th, he sees two black males walking. He yells at them, calls them names, and takes off on his bike towards Proctor Street. Stevie is at home waiting for his stepdad to return at this point. And we jump up to 5.30. Chris has picked up his dad on 14th Street and taken home. Michael is still playing with Trey in the northwest corner of the neighborhood, and Stevie is still missing in action. Then at 5.45, Michael tells Alan Bailey that he's going to go get Chris. He knew that Stevie had to be home for the night when he left, but the last he had seen Chris, there were still no parents home at his house. At this point, Chris is pouting about his spanking and is beginning to clean under the carport. Stevie leaves his house on his bike again to look for Michael. At 5.55, Stevie finds Michael up near Robin Hood. Stevie tells Michael that he's in trouble for being late and probably even more now for leaving again. They decided to hide out in Robin Hood. As they get on their bikes, they come across Kim Williams, who's also on her bike. They ride past Ben Crafton's house, park their bikes on the side of the road, and walk towards the Devil's Den. As they're walking in, Carlos Seals and a couple of his buddies are walking out. They had snuck back into the woods to drink or get higher or whatever teenagers did in 1993. Then Carlos and his buddies harass the boys for a bit and then walk out and come across Dawn Moore. They ask her if she wants a shot. She leaves them and goes to her friend Kim Williams' house. At 6 p.m., Bobby Posey walks past the buyer's house as Chris is running outside. Sack of candy and $2 in tow... Bobby asks him what he's doing, and Chris says he's running away because his daddy whipped him. He walks with Bobby up to Wilson to Carlos's house. At 6.15, Carlos tells Chris that he had just seen his friends up on Goodwin going into Robin Hood. Chris decides to leave and go find them. At this same time, Michael and Stevie leave the woods. 
Michael had told Stevie that he knew of a better place to hide out until Stevie's mom got home. He says that he has a secret hideout behind Mayfair across the pipe bridge. At 6.20, the two exit the woods and find Chris, who is looking for them on 14th Street. They ride down to him. Dana Moore just got home and is walking her dog at the time and sees Christopher jump onto the back of Stevie's bike. Chris tells him that he wants to run away, and since Stevie wants to hide out as well, they head back up towards Robin Hood. At 6.25, Michael is trying to convince Stevie and Chris to go across the pipe to his hideout. Chris is afraid to cross the pipe and would rather hide out in the Robin Hood area. During this time, they come across another friend. This is either our original mystery boy or a new mystery boy. By 6.30, the four boys go back into the Devil's Den area, where Michael continues to try to convince them to cross the pipe. Eventually, they all decide to go to Michael's hideout. By 6.45, they get to the pipe. They leave their bikes on the neighborhood side, much like they left the bikes on Goodwin when they went into Robin Hood. The three, or possibly four, boys cross the pipe bridge, and the next person or persons to see them alive killed them. There's another big misconception in the case that we tackled during Season 5, and that was the idea that the boys' bodies were discovered in a remote forest. Admittedly, I had based my own assumptions of the crime scene on what I had seen in the film adaptation of Mara Leverett's book, The Devil's Knot, which, by the way, I highly recommend both the book and the movie. The film depicted the three boys walking deep into the woods back to a creek. But the reality of the situation is, that the boys were found in a very small patch of woods, not much bigger than a football field. This mini forest was surrounded by people and activity. A major highway to the north, a 24-hour semi-truck wash to the west, and to the south, the bodies were found just a stone's throw away from the backyards of homes and the Mayfair apartments. Stevie, Michael, and Christopher were killed in broad daylight, about 100 feet from people that had no idea that this horrible crime was being committed. We all want to do the right thing to keep our bodies healthy in the long run. But sometimes kale salads and green smoothies just aren't enough to provide all the essential nutrients we need on a daily basis. Enter Ritual, the obsessively researched vitamin for women. Ritual's Essentials have the nutrients most of us don't get enough of from food, all in their clean, absorbable forms. And they don't have any shady additives or ingredients that can do more harm to your body than good. Two easy-to-take capsules provide nine nutrients you need to support a strong foundation for your health. My wife Becky's been taking Ritual's Essentials for women for a while now, and she loves the way they make her feel. From D3 to Omega-3, Ritual's Essential for Women helps fill gaps in a woman's diet. Their no-nausea capsule design is gentle on an empty stomach, and there's a mint tab in every bottle to keep things fresh, so you don't get that fishy aftertaste common with most omega-3s. That's actually one of Becky's favorite parts about Ritual. That mint tab makes these vitamins easy to take. And for you obsessive label readers, all of Ritual's vegan-friendly, sugar-free, non-GMO, gluten-free, and allergen-free ingredients and their sources are out there for the whole world to see. A subscription to Ritual is easy to start, and it's easy to snooze. It's only a dollar a day to have all the essential nutrients your body needs delivered every month with no strings attached. Better health doesn't happen overnight, 
And right now, Ritual is offering our listeners 10% off of your first three months. So fill in the gaps in your diet with Essentials for Women, a small step that helps support a healthy foundation for your body. Visit ritual.com slash truth to start your ritual today. That's 10% off of your first three months at ritual.com slash truth. Once we had a clear idea of how the boys came to find themselves in the small patch of woods behind the Mayfair apartments, and we spent several episodes examining the crime scene, the forensic evidence, and the autopsies, we finally moved on to taking a close look at the original investigation that led to the arrests of Damien, Jason, and Jesse. There's no sense in trying to figure out who killed the boys if the police actually got it right the first time. So once we had determined a window of time when the boys were murdered, we then moved on to see if the three convicted had alibis for that period of time. The concept's pretty simple. You can't be in two places at once. Now the first thing that you need to realize is that this case has two deeply rooted camps. Those that believe the West Memphis Three are innocent and those that believe they're guilty. These factions began to present themselves back in the 90s after the HBO documentary Paradise Lost was aired. At that time, no one really knew a lot of details about the case. Nonetheless, both sides were prepared to dig their heels into their own theories. Then the next 15 years or so were very eye-opening. The internet became a thing that most people had at their fingertips and in their homes. Social media was born, and a ton of new information about this case was made available to anyone who had the time or desire to absorb it. Over those years, more and more people became convinced of the West Memphis Three's innocence. And those that were holding tight onto their 1996 belief that Damien, Jason, and Jesse were guilty found themselves with very little evidence left to support their argument. The results? Well, just take a quick dive on social media and you'll see the result. The groups of what are now referred to as nons are small, but they're fierce. If you stumble into one of their Facebook groups or subreddits, you'll find a constant restating of the same talking points and a great intolerance for anyone who doesn't accept them. Damien was a Satanist. Well, that's actually not true, and even if it was, it still doesn't make him a murderer. Damien's a liar, and he has a violent history. Well, maybe, but that describes about half the town of West Memphis in 1993, and still doesn't mean Damien killed those boys. And then the big one. Jesse Miss Kelly confessed seven times. Now, obviously, that's an important one, but it's not really accurate. Jesse confessed one time just once. After that, he made several more attempts at repeating that confession, with little to no success. He couldn't remember the story because it wasn't his story. The entire confession was fed to him, on tape, by the officers that were interviewing him. And even with that, Jesse never, I repeat, never actually gets the details of the crime scene right, because he wasn't there and he doesn't actually know what happened. Since 2015, my team and I have produced well over 400 episodes of Truth and Justice. A lot of work goes into every single episode. But there is one episode that I am particularly proud of, 
And that is Season 5, Episode 23, The Jesse Miss Kelly Confession. In Episode 23, I break down Jesse's recorded confession moment by moment, blow by blow, point by point. It's literally a play-by-play breakdown and analysis of the interview. Now, I would challenge any of you to listen to that episode and then tell me honestly that you still believe Jesse Miss Kelly has any knowledge whatsoever of the actual crime. My personal assessment? He is clueless. And he was bullied by police who preyed upon his limited intellect in order to coerce a false confession out of a 17-year-old boy. Another tired talking point is that none of the three convicted had alibis for the time of the murder. Now this statement, it's blatantly false. Jason's whereabouts were easily verifiable. He was mowing his uncle's lawn after school, then he went to Walmart to play an arcade game, and then he was at home. Plain and simple. Jesse's alibi is even stronger. Police were actually called out to his trailer park right around the exact time that the murders were occurring. This is all documented. And Jesse was not only at the park during the disturbance, but verified by several witnesses, he actually gave a police officer directions to the trailer that they had been called to. Although the officer then later lied on the stand and said that he didn't remember seeing Jesse. Now, Damien's alibi was covered in two episodes of season five. If you want to hear them, they were episodes 18 and 19. Now, the Nons have long since claimed that Damien has no alibi and that he lied about what he was doing that night. But the actual evidence reveals that that's simply not true. So let me play you here some excerpts from episode 19, where I discuss Damien's alibi. Last week, we worked our way through the statements, interviews, and trial testimonies of nearly a dozen individuals who accounted for Damien Eccles' alibi on the night of the murders. Summarily, we found that on the afternoon of May 5th, 1993, Damien was dropped off at his girlfriend Dominie's house in the Lakeshore Trailer Park in the early afternoon by his mother. After school let out for the day, Damien then walked to his best friend Jason Baldwin's uncle's house with Jason, Dominie, and possibly a young man named Ken Watkins. As Jason was mowing the lawn, Damien and Dominie walked to a laundromat on Missouri Street and called his parents to pick them up. Joe, Pam, and Michelle Hutchison picked Damien and Dominie up and dropped Damien off at her home in the Lakeshore Trailer Park. From there, the family swung by the pharmacy to pick up a prescription and then headed home. When they arrived home, Damien got on the phone with two girls named Holly George and Jennifer Bearden, and then the family ate dinner. During this portion of the day, details and times are a bit inconsistent. However, all accounts seem to indicate that Damien did go to Lakeshore, Jason's uncle's house, the laundromat, back to Lakeshore, and then home for dinner. At this point in the investigation, it would seem that all of these events occurred well before Stevie, Michael, and Christopher went missing. More importantly than these witness statements are the statements that serve as an alibi for Eccles at the exact time that the murders were occurring. After dinner, Damien and his family drove to the home of Randy and Susan Sanders. Only the Sanders' daughter was at home when they arrived just before 7 p.m. The Hutchison family stayed at the house and chatted with young Jennifer for 20 to 30 minutes before returning home for the night. This trip was corroborated by nine witnesses besides Damien, including West Memphis police officer Ricky McKay's wife and daughter, 
and the trip was timestamped by the beginning of the TV show, Beverly Hills 90210, at 7pm. After Damien and his family returned home, according to their statements, Damien remained home for the rest of the evening. He and his family told investigators that he spent the evening talking on the phone to Holly George and Jennifer Bearden again before going to bed sometime between 10.30 and 11.30. This is where Damien's whereabouts begin to be called into question. We're all aware that Narlene Hollingsworth and her family have claimed that they saw Damien and Dominie walking down the service road in muddy clothing around 9.30 p.m. This, of course, directly conflicts with Damien and his family's recollection that he was home on the phone at that time, as well as Dominique Tier and her family who say that she was at her home at 9.30 p.m. So let's now see what Holly George and Jennifer Bearden have to say about Damien's claim that he was on the phone with them on the evening of May 5th. Detectives Brian Ridge and Bill Durham interviewed Holly George at her residence in order to verify Damien's claim that he had spent the evening of May 5th on the phone with her. The interview was taped and the transcript is available on our website. Holly told Detective Ridge that she called Damien on May 5th at around 3.30 in the afternoon. It was a three-way call with her friend Jennifer Bearden. She then goes on to say that after the three-way call ended, Jennifer had told her that she called Damien back and spoke to him alone. She says that Jennifer tried calling Damien a third time that evening, but no one answered the phone. Jennifer then called him a fourth time and spoke to him around 9 p.m. Already we have some discrepancy in Damien and his family's account of that day. So Holly says that she spoke to Damien at 3.30, but according to the family, Damien was walking to the laundromat with Dominie at that time. But on the positive side, the conversation itself does fit with Damien's family story. It's only the times that are off. According to the Hutchisons, this conversation would have taken place closer to 4.30 rather than 3.30. Remember that they all stated that after they returned from dropping Domini off, that Damien got on the phone before dinner. In comparing the two accounts, it's important to note that Damien's mother described the events of the day to detectives less than two weeks after the events occurred. But Brian Ridge didn't interview Holly George until September, over four months after the incident. So it's not entirely unexpected that when someone is asked to remember exact times that they spoke on the phone with someone four months after the fact, that they might mix up a few details. Holly's memory of Jennifer attempting to call Damien later in the day with no answer actually lines up perfectly with the nine witness statements that put Damien and his entire family at the Sanders house from 6.45 to 7.15 p.m. Also, Holly's statement about Jennifer calling and talking to Damien around 9 p.m. would tend to verify the claims of Damien being home talking on the phone. Although, it does cause some problems for the Hollingsworth clan, who claimed that at 9.30, Damien was walking down the service road. Ridge also interviewed Jennifer Bearden in September. Her recollection is similar to Holly George's, with a few details changed. Jennifer told Ridge that she and Holly spoke with Damien on a three-way call around 3.30 or 4 p.m. on May 5th. The conversation was short, only lasting about five minutes, and she says that she called Damien back on her own. She says that they spoke only for a short time, and that Damien told her to call him back in about a half hour at Jason Baldwin's house. She then goes on to say that she did call Jason's house around 5 or 5.30 and spoke with both Jason and Damien. She mentioned that she was a little irritated because they were playing video games with Jason's little brother while they were on the phone. Jennifer goes on to say that the boys told her that they had to get off the phone because they were going to go somewhere, and Damien told her to call him at home around 8 p.m. She tells Ridge that she did call his house sometime around 8, 
and Damien's grandmother answered. Grandma told Jennifer that Damien wasn't at home, but that she should call back around 9. Jennifer says that she did call him back around 9.20 p.m. and spoke with him for a little bit, and had to get off the phone at 9.30. Although, years later, Jennifer swore out an affidavit stating that she was actually on the phone with Damien much later that night. In the affidavit, she says that she had lied when she said she got off the phone at 9.30 because her mother was in the room and she wasn't allowed to be on the phone any later than that. As the interview continues, Ridge goes on to ask Jennifer if Damien told her where he had gone with Jason earlier that day. She says that Damien just said that they went somewhere with Jason's mom. Now, let's compare Jennifer's statement to last week's alleged timeline. She just like Holly George, says that she was on the phone with Damien around 3.30 or 4 p.m. This, of course, conflicts with the theory that Damien was at the laundromat waiting for his parents to pick him up at that time, but again, Jennifer was never asked about the times of these calls until four months had passed by. She then says that she talked to Damien and Jason at Jason's house around 5 or 5.30 while they were playing video games with Jason's little brother. This part of her statement is in direct conflict with everyone else's recounting of the day. But while this may be a problem with the continuity of Damien's timeline, it does put him chatting up girls and happily playing video games in the Lakeshore Estates less than an hour before the three victims were murdered in the Blue Beacon Woods. She then says that Damien's grandmother answered the phone when she called around 8pm and told her that he wasn't home. While the 8pm part is a bit off from the Sanders and the McKay statements and the Beverly Hills 90210 airing, Damien's grandmother being home while he's gone actually does fit. Damien's grandmother lived at the home with his family. Since grandma is not included in any statements about the trip to the Sanders house, it would stand to reason that she would be the only one home to answer the phone while the rest of the family was gone. And lastly, we have Jennifer's statement that she was talking on the phone with Damien from about 9.20 until, once her mom left the room, well past 9.30 which again corroborates Damien and his family's statements that he was home on the phone throughout the evening. And once again, if true, would make the entire Hollingsworth clan story impossible. This particular part of the investigation was one of the most stunning for me to date. From the moment that I announced that we'd be investigating this case, I have had emails, messages, voicemails, and hundreds of Facebook comments exclaiming that Damien Eccles must be guilty because he has no alibi. And I've heard over and over and over again that he lied and said that he was on the phone to Holly George and Jennifer Bearden that night. I was certain that when I read through all of Jennifer and Holly's statements that I would find them completely contradicting Damien and his family's accounts of the evening. But the reality is that these two teenage girls were asked about specific times of specific phone conversations four months after the fact. And by their own statements, they talked on the phone every evening, both to each other and oftentimes to Damien and Jason. They have no anchors whatsoever to confirm their times, such as 90210 starting when the family stopped by. They are simply trying to remember times off the top of their heads four months later. And even with that, Both Jennifer and Holly say that they spoke with Damien that day, Jennifer on multiple occasions, and the times that she remembers still almost perfectly align with the nine witnesses who say that they witnessed Damien at the Sanders house at the time of the murders. And that's it. No one, not one single person, puts him in the woods or even within a mile of the crime scene at the time the murders occurred. 
In fact, we have nine witnesses, including, as I've mentioned several times, West Memphis police officer Ricky McKay's wife and daughter, who all say that when Beverly Hills 90210 came on TV at 7 p.m. on Wednesday, May 5th, Damien was at the Sanders home with his mom, dad, and sister. There is only one witness that contradicts these statements, and that's Ken Watkins. But as I've stated previously, if all nine of the other witnesses are lying and Ken is telling the truth, then Damien still would have been miles away at the Lakeshore Trailer Park in Jason Baldwin's house at the time of the murders. Four months after the incident, two teenage girls, who admittedly spend just about every afternoon and evening on the telephone, told investigators that they spoke with Damien on multiple occasions on May 5th. And the only conflicts in their statements are some shifts in timing from everyone else's account of the evening. I truly went into researching this episode with a full intention of giving you all the witness statements and evidence that could be used to disprove Damien's alibi. What I found is that Damien made some inconsistent statements in the early stages of the investigation. He changed some times around, and there's no getting around that. His evolving statements have apparently been used for years as a stanchion of his guilt. Damien has no alibi. Damien lied about his alibi. I've heard those statements repeated over and over again. But the reality is that there is a lot more to an alibi than one person's account of a day. Any competent criminal attorney will tell you that innocent people don't have alibis. The innocent suspect didn't commit the crime, and therefore the time surrounding the murderers were just a normal day to them. When pressure is put on any person, they will almost always attempt to account for their time. Oftentimes, however, this is an exercise in futility and only serves to dig them deeper as they try to come up with more details. If you really, truly want to know where a person was at a particular time, you have to investigate and evaluate the preponderance of the evidence. Talk to multiple witnesses and search for anchors. Anchors such as the exact time a TV program begins or a tax form for a $10,000 jackpot. It appears to me that based on all of the available evidence, it doesn't matter what he has said, what he has done in the past, or whether or not he has a pentagram tattoo. It is physically impossible for any person to be in two places at the same time. And Damien Eccles could not have committed these murders. My three dogs' health is just as important to me as my children's. Ruger, Titus, and Mackenzie aren't just pets to us. They're family. And that's why what I feed them is so important to me. Do you know what's actually in your dog's food? Well, I do, because my pups get Ollie. Ollie puts dogs first with vet-formulated recipes and fully transparent ingredients to give your dog the healthiest food possible. Ollie makes fresh meals for dogs with real ingredients that people can eat and delivers them to you on a regular schedule. They beat out store-bought dog food at a 10 to 1 on the palatability scale because they create customized vet-formulated recipes made with all natural ingredients, no preservatives, and it's sourced from U.S. family farms. Go to myolly.com, answer a few questions about your dog, and they'll customize recipes to your dog and ship pre-portioned meals so your pup gets the perfect portion every time. They've delivered 5 million meals and counting. Shipping is free, and if your dog doesn't like the meals, they have a money-back guarantee. 
And Ollie is offering our listeners 60% off of your first box plus a free bag of treats at myolly.com slash try slash truth. This is the best deal they have available anywhere. So go to myolly.com slash try slash truth for 60% off plus a free bag of treats. Season 5 of Truth and Justice is by far the most in-depth look at the West Memphis 3 case ever produced in the media. What you've heard here today barely touches the surface of the work that we've done. We've spent the better part of a year producing nearly 70 hours of podcasts, digging deep into the weeds. We cut through the misconceptions and the misinformation, and I believe that we have delivered a fresh new look at a case that after 27 years no one thought could ever be solved. But that was only half the job. Our mission at Truth and Justice is to find just that, the truth, and deliver justice. The first half of every season and every case that we cover is designed to put a microscope on the original investigation to see if mistakes were made. Once we've determined that the wrong people were imprisoned for a crime, that's when the real work begins. It's at that point, the point that we're at right now, that we launch into a new investigation. And that investigation has but one purpose, to find the real killer and put them behind bars. In episode 11 of season 5, I developed a profile of who I believe the killer to be. The profile is based on victimology, the crime scene, and the medical evidence. We use that information to try to determine the why. You see, every action comes from a thought, and every thought comes from some core belief deep within a person. When we study the behaviors demonstrated on a particular crime scene, it's like holding up a mirror to the offender. As my friend and colleague Jim Clementi always says, every victim is chosen at a particular place, at a particular time, for a particular reason. And what we find in the murders of Stevie Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers is that these were not three boys who were just out playing and stumbled into a satanic ritual trap. I don't believe that they ran into anything. I believe that they were running away from their killer. Stevie was in trouble for not returning home on time. Michael was left largely unsupervised and was known to lead his friends into mischief, and Chris Byers, less than an hour before he disappeared, told his friend Bobby Posey that his daddy had whipped him and he was running away. This is the profile for our unsub, or unidentified subject, that I developed in Season 5, Episode 11. The murders were committed by a lone offender. The unsub is mature likely at least 30 years old. He has a known personal relationship to at least one of the victims and is seen as an authority figure to one or all three. He himself was likely abused as a child. He has a psychopathic personality. Those at arm's length believe him to be kind and charming 
while those close to him fear his violent temper. He would be known by those close to him for his violent reactions to anything that upset his own comfort. He would have a history of violence both before and after the murders, and the majority of his violence would be aimed at those weaker than him, namely women and children. Arunsub is a bully. He would never pick a fight against anyone bigger or stronger than himself. He wouldn't even know how to defend himself against such an adversary, and his ego couldn't handle it. He's a narcissist, which would present to most as cockiness. He has never believed that he could be caught, and would laugh in the face of anyone who says otherwise. He lived in the neighborhood, which is where he entered and exited the crime scene. He had access to an empty house that evening. He was able to return home without anyone around to change clothes. He's either single, or his family wasn't home when he returned. He doesn't live in an apartment. He lives in a house. He wouldn't have returned to a place where several other residents could have witnessed coming in with muddy clothes. He was one of the searchers. He would have used the people in the search effort for his alibi. Arunsub is intelligent, at least in a street smart sense, and he's resourceful. He finds it easy to manipulate most people, but he would completely avoid anyone who he's not able to manipulate. His narcissistic ego could never handle anyone getting the better of him, either physically or mentally. He is criminally experienced. He knows how to avoid being caught by the police. He has some history of practicing focus under pressure, possibly military or law enforcement, or possibly even a behavior he learned just by surviving an abusive childhood. He's always the calm one in the room when everyone else is panicking. He would have participated in the search, possibly even attempting to get someone to help him, quote, find the bodies. But once the bodies were found, he would have been a ghost. He would have avoided the police at all costs, and possibly even left the area to avoid the perception of being uncooperative. He would not want to have to decline interviewing with the police or giving DNA samples, so he would just not be there. And lastly... Our unsub likely has some experience packaging meat either as a hunter or as a butcher. From here, I took this profile in our investigation to the Oxygen Network. The network was willing and able to do what I could not. Provide the necessary resources to move the ball down the field towards the truth. They provided the funding necessary for us to bring in a dream team of new experts and to perform tests necessary to finally put an end to this nightmare for everyone involved. And that's where I'm going to leave you today. The Forgotten West Memphis 3 premieres on Oxygen at 8 p.m. Eastern on Saturday, March 28th. I hope that you all watch and pay close attention because after the show airs, it's time for us to get back to work. We will not rest until Stevie, Michael, and Christopher's killer is behind bars. Welcome back to Season 5. Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineering by Shane Yoder. 
All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. I'd like to thank Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month. We also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email, theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at truthjusticepod. I personally can be found on social media at Bob Ruff Truth, and Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.